listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Luke chapter number 9. We're going to finish up a little section that started up in around verse number 18 with a couple of questions Jesus was asking to his disciples. Jesus has been ministering primarily in the area of Galilee. That's where he spent most of the first half, maybe a little bit more than the first half of his ministry in the northern area of Galilee, around Nazareth, even on the eastern side of the Jordan River in those Jewish Gentile areas as well. And now Jesus is preparing for this latter half of ministry where he will be primarily in the Judea area, in and around Jerusalem. So we're coming to a a transition place in this record that Luke gives us uh, about the life of Jesus and, and how that is to impact and how that is to affect us that are reading in 2021. And so one of the things, and hey, amen, right? We're excited. Michaela's excited. We're excited. So we're just going to jump in there. Hey, so... When we come to this, we we got to be asking ourselves, what is it that Luke is specifically trying to say? Now, he's going to talk in just a minute about the kingdom. And, And what you're going to discover as you read the book of Luke is that Luke talks about the kingdom of God some 41 times in his book. What does that tell us? That tells us that the kingdom of God is a central theme to the gospel of Luke. What you're going to find if you read in Matthew and Mark is that the kingdom of God is central in their accounts as well. You'll read John and you'll think, well, maybe John is just a little bit different, but really the the gospel writer there is doing the same thing. And, And the kingdom is very, very important. So I've been doing some personal reading on just exactly how to understand or to best understand the kingdom of God. My, my hope is that it'll come out as we're teaching. I, I don't intend to just do a week on the kingdom. Uh, that will probably be the week that y'all decide we don't want to have to sit and listen to that. That's, that's a seminary classroom. We won't do that. But I want to try to make sure that you understand that I'm wrestling with what does the kingdom of God look? How are we to understand it? And how is it to, to be active in our life today? Is it something we're looking forward to? Is it something we're involved in now? How are we to look at it? And hopefully we will be able to spread that out effectively as we teach. But so that we can get a running start to this unique scene that we see though if you've been in church anytime, you've read this many times before. In order to get a running start, I, I want to begin in Luke 9, verse number 20, just so that we can hear the, the sequence of events that happened. Luke 9, 20, then he said, Jesus, then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And, and Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Verse number 27, where we'll begin our study today. Jesus says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Sounds pretty clear, does it not? There are some of you who are here who won't taste death until you, in fact, see the kingdom of God. One of the things that is true about our society is this. We love movies. I mean, we love movies. We will sometimes even order our weddings around movies and trilogy of movies. Any, anybody, you know anybody that has had a lightsabered wedding? Anybody been a part of the, no, anybody? No. We love them. I mean, listen, I cannot tell you how long I wanted a brown fedora to wear around, even though fedoras aren't cool on a 15-year-old boy because of how much I loved Indiana Jones. When I was a little bit younger, I, I wanted very badly to have a sleeveless, puffy vest that I could wear on the outside of my jean jacket, and I so desperately wanted to find someone with a DeLorean that I could ride around with because of how much I loved Back to the Future. We love movies. And one of the things we love about movies is the anticipation of a movie to come. Now, some of you will go to the movies and you have the mindset that if it starts at 8 o'clock, that you can be there at 8.20 because your rationale is we can get there a little late because that time is all wasted on the previews. How dare you say something so heretical. There are others of us who know who would say if it starts at 8 o'clock, we need to be there by 7.50 so that we can get the popcorn, we can get the sodas, we can get our seats because almost as good as the movie is the previews. Amen. I knew I had some folks that know something in the house. Now, we've progressed in our technology. You don't have to go to the Cinemaplex to see the previews of the movie to come. Now, you can just get a text alert from your buddies that tells you, Hey, did you know that the new trailer has dropped? And we get, well, I, I do. I don't know about y'all, but I get excited when the filmmakers decide to give us a little glimpse of what is to come. In fact, I think that at times I get more excited about the minute and a half trailer 
than I do about the two-hour-long movie. That's upside down. Okay, so there's something wrong with me. But I do enjoy and get excited because I'm so highly anticipating what they're giving me just a little taste of. And then they ruin it by giving you like four trailers. You know, half the movie you go, you could quote it before you even see it. Okay, but you get what I'm saying. The trailer gives you just a little glimpse of what is to come. Now, Jesus says, I tell you, I've already, I've already explained in brief that the mission of Messiah, Messiah is God's anointed representative of his kingdom in a way different than David and Solomon and others. This representative would be a unique chosen king that's unique from all of those, this king is going to rule and reign forever. And you guys have already correctly deduced that I am, Jesus is saying, that I am indeed the Christ, the unique Son of God. Now, they don't know yet that He's God the Son. That's going to come after a while. They're still trying to wrestle with the fact that He's Messiah. So you get that I'm Messiah. I'm the promised one. I'm the one that everyone's been anticipating that, that involves this day of the Lord where things are going to happen and, and God's uh, purpose in the world is going to be seen and recognized in a unique way. You've correctly identified me. And just before you think that you did this on your own, the Father revealed that to you, but we'll talk more about that later. Now, my mission as Messiah is not to come riding in on a white horse with all of my host of angelic armies behind me. In fact, my mission, he says, is to suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests and the elders, be killed and be raised on the third day. My mission as Messiah, as the promised king, as the one who will reign, my mission is to suffer and die and be raised. And if that wasn't confusing enough, and if you boys are going to follow me, and if anyone else in the crowd is going to follow me, then the way they're going to follow me is through suffering to victory. They're going to follow me by denying themselves. Following me means you're going to have to say no to you because you want a lot of things and you think a lot of things and you've got a lot of plans and you've got a lot of ways that your life can work out to your benefit and you're going to have to say no to all of that. You're going to have to set aside your will, your agenda, your plans. How many of those plans, Jesus? All of them. And you're going to have to pick up what is right now a figurative, imaginary cross, which is an instrument of execution, which he hadn't told them yet that's how he's going to die. But they knew exactly the thing he was talking about. You've got to set aside all your stuff and in your heart and in your mind embrace a cross that is not yet real. But when it is, 
you will embrace it no less completely. You're going to follow me knowing that at any moment, following me could cost you your life. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to be okay with that. You're not going to understand why you're okay with that. It's, it's going to be a total paradox. Nobody's going to understand you. Nobody's going to get you. But you're going to follow me. And you're going to be willing to pay for following me with your life. Now, everything they had known, everything they had been taught was turned absolutely upside down. The promised king was to come. He was going to overthrow the oppressive armies, including Rome and anybody else that they hadn't already conquered. He was going to raise Israel to a place of prominence. He was going to rule and reign, and everybody's going to worship him, and things were going to be good. Jesus, I don't understand what you're talking about. Jesus, is like, I know you don't understand. But God had said all these things through the prophets. He's already said, y'all just, y'all, you know, we, we listen to stuff. We like to listen. We hear the good stuff. You know, the bad stuff, a lot of times it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. We like to, we hear what we want. We have selective hearing, right? Well, so did most of Israel. Because what Jesus was describing was not at all what they were expecting of him, and it certainly wasn't what they were expecting him to say about them. And then in their confusion, he goes, and by the way, some of you are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom. And I'm sure they're thinking, what in the world does that mean? You've just completely destroyed everything we thought we knew about the kingdom, and now you're saying some of us aren't going to die before we see it? Well, let's continue. Thinking about this, God's kingdom is the major focus of what we're about to see. In fact, I think it could be argued that God's kingdom is the major focus of this entire gospel and the gospels themselves. But I'm still reading. I'm still wrestling. Let's read the scripture. It says, verse 28, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, I think... Based on, based on what we've read previously, I think that Jesus and the disciples are located north of Galilee in that region of, of Caesarea Philippi. I think that's where they still are. And so probably this mountain that they're going up on is actually a mountain. Mount Hermon is one of the most spectacular mountains in that area. And you can visit that and see that snow covered. It's a beautiful thing. And it's out away from cities and towns. And I think that's probably where Jesus has gone up and has invited Peter and John and James to come with him in order, it says, to pray. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. As I've already mentioned, Luke mentions the kingdom 41 times. It's a major focus. What they see, what, what, Pete, what, what Luke tells us happens is, is that Jesus takes Peter, James, John up on the mountain. They're praying, and, and it seems as as Jesus is praying... He begins to change in his appearance. His, his face begins to look different. Luke says it was altered. Uh, Matthew and Mark both used the term metamorpho. What does that term sound like? 
It sounds like metamorphosis, where the, you know, caterpillar goes in, makes a cocoon, comes out, beautiful butterfly. It changes from one thing to another. Well, that's translated in, in Matthew, Mark, with the word transfigured. So, so what the writers are saying is that Jesus went and his appearance was radically changed. Notice what it says. His clothing became dazzling white. This idea of dazzling means like electric. The idea of like a bolt of lightning. Have you ever been around a bolt of lightning? It flashes and and, and you're like, wow, how close was that? You know, because it's just so brilliant. Uh, Some of the headlights now that are are LED are are just, they're absolutely blinding. And you get up on them, they don't have that yellow look anymore. They're they're kind of bluish white. And you're just like, put those things on on dim for crying out loud because it's just so bright in your eyes. That's how Jesus appeared. His face changed. It began to emit this this white electric type of, 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 of glory, if you will. One of the other gospel writers says that his, his clothing became so bright, it was, it was whiter than any laundryman could, could get it with the bleaches. And, and if they were doing all they could to get the stains out, this was far whiter than anything they'd ever seen. It was blinding. God is giving a sneak peek of what is to come. Not not what is to come in the shorthand. In the shorthand, Jesus has already said, suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. But after that resurrection... I'm just reminding you who have been thrown sideways with this new information, which shouldn't have been new. You should have learned it in synagogue, but I get why you didn't pay a lot of attention to that. But you're thrown sideways, and now I think God's saying, now don't don't forget that glory is still to come. It's this sneak peek. See, I think that this idea of kingdom. I think it begins back in the Old Testament when God is speaking to Adam and Eve after their sin. And he looks at Eve and he says, you're going to have a, you're going to have a seed. He didn't tell her she was going to have a, a child. She said she's going to have seed, meaning she was going to have a descendant who was going to be born, and he was going to be at odds with the serpent. Now, I don't think he was saying that they're going to be at odds with snakes, although I would qualify for that crowd, okay? But I think what he was saying is, is that, Eve, you're going to have a descendant who is going to be in direct opposition to the power behind the serpent that's, that has deceived you and your husband. And here's what's going to happen. That seed of the serpent is going to bruise his heel. He's going to have a, a, an effect on him. But the effect your seed's going to have on the seed of the serpent is he is going to, with that heel, crush his head. So I think the idea of the kingdom goes all the way back to the garden where God had created 
those that he intended to love and gave free opportunity to love him back and he was going to dwell with them and rule over them as the the pure and holy benevolent king ruler God over all. That was his intention, blessing and mutual love in an environment that he created specifically for them. But sin broke that. Sin entered into our world. Sin entered into the universe and broke it. And so I believe what God has stated to Eve back in Genesis 3 is that I'm going to rule in and amongst my creation. And it's going to happen through your seed that's going to come and have a great defeating effect on the evil that has entered into my creation. And then you move forward to folks like Noah who gets promises And I think it's all about God's ultimate rule. And then you get promises made to Abraham, like, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and you're going to have descendants, and they're going to have descendants, and there's going to be so many descendants that that you're not even going to be able to count them. There are going to be so many, kind of like the sands on the seashore. But Abraham, my point in making a nation is that out of that nation is going to come one who's going to bless not just that nation, but the whole world. And then he tells that same promise to a fellow by the name of David. And he says, out of that seed is going to come someone through your line, that royal line. So this is going to be a rule, a kingly type situation. He's going to come from your line, from from your people. And he's going to set up his throne. And he is going to rule as my representative. His kingdom is going to be forever. And then he makes some statements to a fellow by the name of, uh, of Jeremiah. And he says, now I'm going to up the ante even more. This promise that I'm making is not about you obeying this, that, or the other. It's about me changing your heart. And kingdom interest involves a change of heart that my laws and, and my will are going to be written on their heart. And they're going to experience this rule from this one that is to come. And it's going to make sense to them because they've trusted and they've given themselves to him. And it's written on their heart. And then God went silent. Several hundred years. And then a gentleman jumped up on a tree stump wearing some crazy, you know, a hair onesie and eating grasshoppers and long hair and beard and probably hadn't showered in a while and Boy, who are you? I'll tell you who I am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And I'm saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the prophets that had prophesied, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, they had all talked about this day of the Lord that was coming that the Israelites just connected to that kingdom and said, oh, oh, okay, so we've got one coming. He's the anointed one, the the Mashiach, the Messiah. He's coming, and he's going to be of the line of David. Oh, good. And he's going to set up a kingdom. It's going to be for, oh, that's going to be awesome. And then God's going to write the laws on our heart. Excellent. And there's going to be this day of the Lord where this stuff is going to happen. It's going to be amazing like it's never been seen before. And we're not going to know what to do. It's just going to be out of this world. And then things are going to be great. So when John says the kingdom of God is at hand, they're like, 
Bring it on. Bring on that day of the Lord. Rain fire on them, God. Let's get this thing on. But that's not why Jesus came. And that's why they didn't like him. Because Jesus came on the scene, he started doing things that identified him as Messiah, but he was saying things that was making the religious leaders really mad, threatening their authority. And they said, we got to get rid of him. And Jesus in this scene says, they're thinking they got to get rid of me. Bottom line is, I've come to give myself. See, they don't, they don't realize that at the very same time that they're committing high treason against their creator, they're at the very same time fulfilling God's will for me. Now, you say, Pastor Kevin, how in the world does that work? I don't have a clue. I mean, I can't even hardly keep up with when Youth for Christ not coming today. They're coming next week. How in the world am I going to know what God does? I don't. I just know how it all works, what he said. So this kingdom idea has the, the notion of God ruling. And so when Jesus says, some of you are not going to taste death until you see the kingdom, I think what he's saying is some of you are not going to die before you see a glimpse of what is to come. I find it interesting in a book by uh, George uh, Eldon Ladd, written back in the 50s, called Gospel of the Kingdom. He says, you know, we miss the, the right definition of kingdom. Because both the Hebrew and the Greek word that are translated kingdom most often just simply refers to authority to rule the authority to reign, the power or the, 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 the ability to take that throne, having the credentials to do so. And he says most of the time when you see kingdom in the New Testament, you need to read it first and see if it fits to, to be saying, some of you will not taste death until you see the authority to rule by God. We we, we like to package the kingdom into a, a given time period as though everything about the kingdom is to come. I'm going to argue that the full expression and experience of God's sovereign rule is still to come in a very glorious way. But I think that on the cross we see our king enthroned just in a very upside-down, paradoxical way. And if you say, how can that be possible? Because that cross ultimately led to resurrection. Just in case you thought, no, this is an enthronement. We've killed your king. Give it a little while. He'll be back. And he was, and he is. So... On the heels of this conversation that he's had with these fellas, he says, look, won't you three come with me? I don't know why he picked them. I mean, Peter's an idiot. You know that. You've read the gospel. Why would he pick Peter? Probably because he needed a little extra tutoring, probably. Peter, come on. Bring James and John with you. And they went up on the side of the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, he was transfigured. He pull the vest back, if you will, just a little bit so that they can see. Think about Philippians. And look, if, 
if you haven't been around the scriptures, let me just apologize. I know I'm talking like you've been around. You know what I'm talking about. Look, hang around and ask questions because we'd love to catch you up. But in the New Testament book of Philippians, Paul says that, that God the Son did something pretty awesome. In order to become like you and me, he emptied himself. Again, I don't know what that means. It just means that what, whatever that glory and, and opportunity that he had as God the Son, he voluntarily sets, that to, sets it aside, he veils it, whatever he does, so that he can step into humanity and identify completely with me and you. See, he, we wouldn't be able to identify with glorified baby Jesus because he would be so different from us. So he set that aside voluntarily so that he might be completely and fully immersed in humanity. And then up on the mountain... I think he's saying, just, just so y'all know, I hadn't lost this. I've set it aside. Check this out. It's just, a, it's just a little glimpse. Just take a look. The kingdom has always been the major focus. It's always been leading to this. Verse number 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I don't nearly have enough time to flesh this out. Why Moses and Elijah? Again, I don't know. I would have thought Abraham and David would have been a good duo. Hey, how about Joshua and Caleb? They would have been a couple of Old Testament heroes that would have been worthy of it. What about Jeremiah and Hezekiah? I, I don't know why Moses and Elijah. So you have to begin to just sort of try to decipher because the Scripture doesn't tell you why. But you begin to ask questions that are, that are revealed in Scripture. And, and, and you begin to come away with the thought that maybe it's Moses and Elijah because Moses stands as the representative of Israel's original exodus from Egypt out of captivity, the one who represented God and spoke for God and said, let my people go. And ultimately, what did Pharaoh do? He let them folks out and gave them all the stuff and said, please be on your way. So Moses is the representative of first Exodus, and he's also the human agent of the law. So much so that when people in, in, in the Jewish history have talked about the law, many of times they've called it the law of Moses. It wasn't Moses' law. Moses just happened to be up on the mountain because God chose him to hold the tablets that he broke and had to get repeated. So, but Moses stands as that representative of the Exodus and God's law. I think Elijah stands as the archetypical, am I saying that right? Because I asked Google how to say that, and she said archetypical Teachers, fix me, okay? Y'all were too scared to ch take the challenge. Okay, he stands as, that good, Jenny? Thank you, archetypical. Uh, prophet doesn't mean he was the greatest prophet, but it does mean that he represents what the prophets generally were like. And he was the crowd favorite. 
they, the people of Israel, love Elijah. They love him. They're bringing him up all the time. They thought Jesus might have been him. Elijah stands as the archetypical, I'm going to say that for weeks, okay, because I say bad, I say wrong words all the time, so uh, made up words and stuff. He's the archetypical prophet, representative of God's judgment and forerunner of the kingdom age to come. The prophet Malachi said, before this day of the Lord is to come, Elijah will come and herald Somebody's going to have to give me a bottle of water out there because I'm dying. He's going to herald that coming judgment. See, I got too excited too early, okay? And I normally got to wait it, and I put myself in the corner. He's going to say the kingdom is coming. Get ready. Judgment is on the horizon. Now, John the Baptist, in a certain way, Jesus has already said, was a type of Elijah, but I think he's coming. Thank you, son. I love you. You're so, you're so kind. He's coming because that day of the Lord hadn't happened yet. All those things that were going to happen ain't happened yet. So he's coming. So I think that Moses being there and Elijah being there is to represent in summary the history of Israel. They represent in human form the law and the prophets. Jesus said, I tell you, when it comes to the law and the prophets, uh, I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. I wrote them. I like them. It's still true. I just come to fulfill what they have said as a result of my leading. And so I think Elijah, Moses represent the, the, the summary statement of Israel and Jesus in glory, I believe, is communicating to Peter, James, and John, hold on, fellas. Everything that God has promised is going to transpire. I'm representing the pinnacle of the story you've been living out. This that I've talked about, suffering and death and resurrection, this is it. What is Jesus going to say on the cross? He doesn't say it is halftime. It is almost done. What's he going to say? He's going to say it is finished. So what are we doing here? We're living in the middle of God's grace. Because he's not willing that any should perish, and we've been called to take that message to all who believe. Because God says, I, I, I'm going I'm to give it some time. Because I want to save. I want to redeem. I want to rescue. So, I think what we're seeing is the culmination of the story of Israel. Now, do I think Israel has some more roles to play? Yeah, I do. I actually do think they have some more roles to play, and, and they'll get to be a part of that. I, think, I don't think you can read Romans and not know that Israel still has some things to do and that God's going to use them and bless them uniquely and blah, blah, blah. But this is the culmination of the story. Not only that, both Moses and Elijah had some unique departures from earth. You see, God took Moses and buried him where nobody could find him so that he wouldn't be worshipped. 
God took Elijah in a chariot. Didn't even die. Just said, jump on board, boy. Let's go to the house. You know, so he picked him on chariot and off up he went. He said, how do you know that? Because Elisha was standing beside the river watching him go up. And he said he did put on his cloak and he had the double portion. And I cannot get into that. What are they talking to Jesus about? It says right here, they were talking to him of his departure. Well, see, Jesus is going to have a pretty radical departure, too. You say, part, departure from life? Yes and no. Jesus was going to die of crucifixion. A lot of folks before Jesus had died of crucifixion. A lot of folks after Jesus were going to die of crucifixion. In fact, many of those that would die of crucifixion after Jesus died of crucifixion were going to have literally taken up their cross. To follow him to that place. But the difference with Jesus is Jesus is going to die of crucifixion. And then God was going to raise him victorious. Well, now what? Well, now he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. Where he will do what? He will wait until the Father says, Now go back there and show them the rule that is already yours. And so they're seeing these guys and, and, and they're wondering, but the point is, the reason they're there is because it's always been leading to this. The death, the resurrection of Jesus. But the kingdom being established by its king through enthronement on a cross. Make sense? Let's keep going. Verse 32. Now Peter. Well, it was too good for a while, wasn't it? Now Peter. And those who were with him were heavy with sleep. We're going to see that again in, in not too many chapters when Jesus went to pray and said, could you hang with me for an hour? And they could and they fell asleep. But, you know, they were tired and that's just, hey, how many times have we been praying and discovered it was alarm clock going off, right? So we know our limitations. So they were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his, what? Glory. All right, hold, hold your finger right there. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. See, it already told them. You got, you got to follow me, and you got to, you, you, you got to come after me the way I'm, way I'm leading you. Is you want to be in that place when I come in my glory. And now what are they seeing him in? A glimpse of his glory. This is what I'm talking about right here. And the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him. Talking about parting from Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Uh, Master. See, this would have been a great place for Peter just to watch and you know, maybe take a note or something and just be, just be in the moment. But he had to interject something because I'm just figuring I, I, could, I could add something here. He says, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. Now, 
A lot of Bible students think that the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, which was the last feast that was held in the, in the religious year, was being held in Jerusalem at that time. That, a lot of Bible students think that why Peter went here was because that's what was happening south of there in Jerusalem. Hey, while you're here, let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents is what Peter's saying we need to do. Well, we don't know if the feast was going on at this time or not. I can't be certain. But at any rate, Peter made a theological connection. Because the Feast of Tabernacles was where the people of Israel would come to Jerusalem. And it was like a big camp out. And it was, it was intended that way. Because people would travel. And, and even folks that lived in Jerusalem in homes would come out of their homes. And they would set up little lean-to tents or, or booths or whatnot. And they would sleep outside to remember how God had provided for them in tents in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land. It was a feast of remembrance. It was also a feast of anticipation. The anticipation of the provision of the one who would come and rescue them as the ultimate representative of God. So it was a remembering what God did and a remembering of what God is going to do. And Peter's like, hey, I know what let's do. While y'all all here, let's celebrate. Let's just, let's raise this thing up and let's have a great celebration. What, what he didn't realize he was doing, I think, is that he was placing Moses and Elijah on the same plane as Jesus. Because remember... Two very heroic figures in the mind of all the Jewish people. And notice what he said. Let's build a tent for you and for you and for you as we celebrate, I think, what y'all are going to do. Something happens real quick. Verse 34. As he was saying these things. A cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. I know what let's do. Blah, blah, blah. And then, whoosh, the cloud comes in. You say, what what must that look like? I think it looked exactly like what it did out there in the wilderness when the cloud would move in and the folks would know, okay, God's ready to move. And the cloud moved, they would move, and the cloud stopped, they stopped. You didn't want to be around the cloud, around the temple. They certainly didn't want to be around the cloud up on the mountain when Moses was getting the, the, the law. And they were saying, God, you, Moses, you talk to God in the cloud. We don't want to talk to him. He's too loud up there. He scares us. I think that's how God showed up. And he enveloped the five of them, and they became afraid. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Peter's gone 0 for 2 in a little bit more than a week. The other gospel, I believe it was Matthew. Jesus said, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be resurrected. Peter takes Jesus aside. He goes, now, Lord, I think we can come up with a better plan than that. 
Okay, don't, don't sound like a very good one. Let's talk about one with armies and victories and all that kind of stuff. And, and y'all know, if, if you've, been, you've been around, you know what Jesus looked at him and said. He said, get behind me who? Yeah, because Peter was speaking with the voice of the enemy. You would think Peter would have thought, nah, I got to shut up when things happen I don't get. But he didn't. And that's good news. Thank you. I know I heard that. She knows. Peter said, let's do this. God goes, Peter. I use Moses. Yep. I use Elijah. I'm not going to tell you why they're even here. My son. He's Messiah. He's the king. He's my representative. He's the one with glory. Do what he says. Don't pay attention to the racket beside you. Don't pay attention to the distractions that are coming around. Don't you pay attention to anything but him. What he says, do. And I'm just imagining that Peter is dying inside. I've been scolded by folks in my life. And, you know, a lot of times I get scolded. I was a kid, I just go, I just wanted to cry. Sometimes I did cry. I didn't mean to make you mad. I'm just imagining Peter's just, he's done. Matthew tells us that when the cloud was gone and they were in their fright, that, that Jesus came alongside and said, Hey, fellas, it's me. He comforted them and got, you know what Jesus wasn't doing? Jesus was not saying to them, I know my father's got a bad temper. That wasn't what he's saying. I, 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 he wasn't, I know sometimes he can lose it. You know, don't worry about it. Listen, I'll, I'll work it out. Between. But you know what? Jesus does work it out between broken man and holy God. God in his holiness don't you dare put anybody on the level of God the Son, the Savior. Don't you dare put something broken on the same level with Him. My holiness will not allow that. And then His love and mercy comes and says, Aren't you glad that's not the extent of the relationship you have with God? And Matthew Mark tells us, he said, don't, don't, don't talk about this until the resurrection. Luke tells us in verse number 36 that this was going to be a subject for another day. When they rose, or when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Jesus said, let's, let's don't talk about it. And I, I, I'm just imagining those three are like, I'm, I'm good with that, Lord. Let's don't talk about this. D don't know what to do. But I think at the self-same time, it was, but don't you forget this. Jesus knows the days are going to get hard. And they're going to keep missing the point. They're going to keep fumbling and bumbling. I think Jesus like, don't forget this. When it gets tough, you don't understand, and you're confused, and you're just thinking, all is lost. Remember the day. 
that I showed you this. Just for a minute. See, I think when they saw him alive after death, I don't think they had to remember it quite like that anymore, though they did talk about it. John chapter 1, verse 14, after his resurrection, when he's writing his gospel, John says, And the word, the logos, became flesh and he dwelt among us. Hey, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, and he was full of grace and truth. We saw him, we held him, but boy, did we see what is to come. It was just a glimpse, but it's coming, y'all. He's coming. He's alive. Let me tell you about him. And then Peter, in his second letter to the churches, Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And I just imagine his 17-year-old protege saying, And Peter, didn't you say something about building tents? Hush, boy, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) We beheld his glory, and we're excited to tell you about it because it is coming. But it's coming only for those who confess him correctly and follow him obediently. For those that will say, you are God's Messiah, you're God the Son, you're the bringer of salvation through your death and your bodily resurrection, and and, and I believe that was done for me, for the payment of my sin and the redemption of of my soul, and you were raised and ascended, and you're coming back, and and you've said to follow you, i got to set my stuff aside and embrace you. And take what you want over what I want and be willing to pay for that. No matter the cost, even my life. For those that are willing to follow him by faith, believing. By faith, trusting. That glory that they saw should be an excitement of things to come. And a reminder for us when things get hard. When things get tough, and we don't know if we're going to make it, we can say, we will make it. He's made it for us, and he will be glorified, and we'll get to see it. Just some lessons, and then we'll go. Glory and redemption, number one, through suffering is the eternal paradoxical plan of God. I'm going to say it again. Glory and redemption through suffering is the eternal paradoxical plan of God. That is not plan B. It was God's intention. Number two, what we are witnessing right now in the life of Jesus is the fulfilling of all God's promises to and through Israel. Thank God those blessings are also afforded to us outside of Israel 
by the same faith that Israel must exercise. That way's been made available and that wall of partition's been broken down. Now all men and women, boys and girls, come to God by faith in Christ. Number three, the sneak peek of Jesus glorified should be a strong reminder that there is more to come. And it's not about who gets elected in 2022 or 2024. It's about what God has always been doing regardless of who sits in what office. So press on. And then lastly, hear the voice of God. Not from a cloud, but, but through a, a southern stammering vessel. Hear the voice of God say this. Christian, don't be distracted by anything or anyone else. Don't rely on your own reasoning or understanding. Focus on, listen to, follow, and obey my son. Whatever he says, do that. Heads bowed and eyes closed. This is your time to do business with God. Hopefully he has encouraged you by the scene we have tried to lay out before you on a mountain north of Galilee. Hopefully you've been encouraged and excited about things to come. But more than that, I believe in that we see a resounding call to the things that are. Separating ourselves to Christ ordering our lives according to His Word, submitting our will to His, communicating His gospel to those we come in contact with, and then living that gospel. And the opportunities we have at home, at work, at play, at school, wherever we're at, being the representative He's called us to be. So, Father, we thank You for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to just lift him up. You've said wherever Christ is lifted up, you'll draw all men to him. I pray for that one who may be here today that knows about Jesus. In fact, they may know a lot about Jesus, but right now in their heart, they're thinking, I don't know that I'm truly his follower. I believe some things. I believe some facts, but I've never even considered denying myself and being willing to take up his cross and follow him. God, I pray that you would draw their heart, that they would see their need, and that they would, by simple faith, not only confess who Christ is, not only confess what he has done, but to surrender themselves, submit themselves to him by faith. God, I pray that if they're confused, that they'll hang around, not leave too quick. Give us an opportunity to take your word and show them exactly what that means. Now, Father, we thank you for the glimpse that we have of the glorified Son. We don't know when he's coming, but we confess without shame that he is returning. 
He told us he was. And we believe he's coming back gloriously. And he's going to rule. And it's going to be awesome. But I pray that our attention won't be solely on that. That we will stay engaged in our responsibilities today. For your glory. Under his rule. In anticipation of what is to come. We love you. We thank you. For it's in the name of Jesus. Our Savior. And our returning King. All the ways his church says.